This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Julia Magana. Hi, and welcome back to EM Pulse. This is Julia Magana, and I am your host today because we are going to talk about a topic that we in the emergency department definitely deal with. That is measles, weaselly measles, sarampion, whatever you call it. It is a hot topic. It's in the news. It's on social media. It's in blogs. Heck, I even saw it on Madam Secretary and Meet the Midwife this last week. Unfortunately, measles is not just on TV. Almost every shift now, I get called back to do a rash check and have to make the decision. Do I use up an isolation room for this kiddo on the off chance that they might have measles? Or do I allow them to wait in the hallway to be seen or wait out even in the waiting room? It is absolutely nerve wracking. Fortunately, I caught up with Dr. Dean Blumberg, who's the head of pediatrics infectious disease at UC Davis and also a fellow podcaster. He and Dr. Lena Rothstein host Kids Considered, which is our sister podcast here at UC Davis. Kids Considered is geared towards answering the questions that family have for their pediatricians, like, is organic food worth the hype? Find out that answer when you check out their podcast, wherever you get your podcast. In the meantime, here is my discussion with Dean about measles from the perspective of the emergency department. Let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to medical school for a lot of us. Um, remind us, what is measles and why is this so important? So measles is an infectious disease. It's a viral disease. And we're familiar with the three C's, cough, coryza, and conjunctivitis. So it usually starts with fever. And then there's cough and the coryza, the runny nose, and the conjunctivitis, the itchy, runny eyes. And then after that, there's the development of the rash. And that's what's tricky about measles, because when it starts off, you're not really thinking as a healthcare provider that it's that much different from a viral URI in the community. And especially during the winter and spring months, when we know there's a lot of viral URIs going around, it's not until there's the appearance of the rash that people start thinking about something like measles. And so... I can't get into details of this particular patient and how they presented, but I can tell you it's not uncommon for these kind of exposures to occur when the patient um, is seeking medical attention and maybe they don't have the characteristic rash at presentation. Can you share anything about the recent case that we've had come through Northern California and through UC Davis? Yeah, so we had a case at UC Davis that was really a wake-up call for all of us. And we had a young patient, a pediatric patient, come to the emergency department. This was after the patient had showed up at other outlying healthcare facilities And this was a patient who was ill for several days, um, was undiagnosed. In our emergency department, measles was not suspected. The patient was not isolated for measles. And so there were several exposures. It was two days after the patient that was admitted to the hospital. At that time, measles was suspected. And at that time, the patient was appropriately isolated. But because of all that, There were a whole bunch of exposures to staff and to um, people who were in the ED. Um, And so our infection prevention department just, you know, went into high gear to deal with that. 
And what does that look like when you have to go into high gear? So um, what that meant was I'm going into all the detail about the patient and their their potential exposures. So that means going into detail with the patient, all the potential exposures that they had, figuring out who was in the emergency department in the waiting room, who was potentially exposed in the room that the patient was in in the emergency department after the patient was admitted to the hospital, um, the ward that the patient was in, what sort of potential exposures went there, checking on people's um, immunity. So for healthcare providers, obviously, we have that information. We know if they're immune or if they're immunized. So we know that if they're susceptible or, or not. And then notifying all the families, all the potential patients who were exposed and the families, and notifying the public health departments for the counties that they reside in so that these potential exposures can be tracked so that no further exposures occur. Sounds like a logistical nightmare for sure. <laughs> uh, it's completely a, a nightmare because there's always a lot of exposures in these situations because obviously the emergency department waiting room is going to be busy. And remember that measles is transmitted by the airborne route. So you don't have to be in close contact, like, like for example, with pertussis, it's droplet. So normally the, the, it's three to six feet is the maximum, um, that, that the, um, infectious area from a person is. But with measles, since it's airborne, since it's such a small particle, it's so light, it can be circulated throughout a room, even a large room. And it can stay in the air, suspended in the air, and potentially infectious even after the patient leaves the room. So you don't even have to have patient-to-patient -patient contact with that. So the patient can be in a room, leave the room, an hour later somebody comes into that room, and they could still be potentially exposed. And what does that rash look like that's so characteristic? So it starts off at the head, and it's an erythematous macular rash, and then it gradually coalesces and then moves down on the body. So that's the characteristic rash. And when you've seen it, it's pretty obvious. I am old enough that when I was in my um, pediatric infectious diseases training, um, I was in Los Angeles during the 89 to 91 outbreak of measles. And so I saw a ton of measles and feel very comfortable looking at it and saw a bunch of atypical cases, typical cases, cases in kids, in adults. But I know that a lot of people who weren't around then, there haven't been many measles cases for people to evaluate. And so people may be less familiar with it. So maybe go online, look at some pictures, take those opportunities before they walk through your doors to look for that typical rash. Right. So CDC has a lot of great pictures, for example, on their website. That's a good resource. Thanks for that. How reassured should I feel if my patient is vaccinated? So one dose of measles vaccine at 12 months of age or older provides about 97% immunity. Two doses gives you about 99%. So now you're thinking 99% for vaccines, that's pretty darn good, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. But now think why we're so worried about measles. It's because it's so infectious. It's one of the most infectious diseases known to mankind. So, all right, somebody sees that concerning rash, hears this concerning history, especially if they're unimmunized or if they've done any travel. What labs should they order once they've put them in isolation? Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that because the first thing to do is to try to limit any more exposure. So, for example, you could even put a mask on them if they've shown up right at triage. And
than just a regular mask or even an N95, but just anything that'll help limit transmission. And then you want to get them in an airborne isolation room um, and make sure that everybody is masking when they go in. So, so first isolate them. And then if you suspect it, you're going to want to make the diagnosis. And the way to make the diagnosis these days is PCR. So PCR of throat swabs, serum, and urine, that's the best sensitivity. And then we also do measles um, IgM. In the olden days, we just did measles IgM. But now, since there's less measles going around and all IgM assays are prone to false positives, it's much better to um, actually detect the virus. And how fast does that PCR come back? So public health takes this very seriously. And so depending on your local and state public health, they're very motivated to run this basically ASAP. So you should have a pretty quick turnaround time on the PCR assays. Which is like hours, days, weeks? It depends on the situation. Um, In our case, it was a day. So they're not going to come back in that acute visit necessarily. Um, What should you do if you have a high suspicion before the PCR comes back? Notify your infection prevention folks. And that'd be one of the first things I do and let them take charge of the isolation and, and other issues. So when should emergency medicine providers put that on their differential? What questions and exam findings can they look for? Well, even though there's a lot of localized measles outbreaks occurring in the U.S. right now, there's still not widespread measles transmission. And so we still look for epidemiologic history. So the things that I think are important in addition to the classic characteristics, the fever, the three C's, and the rash, is asking if there's any international travel to an area of the world where we know that there's more measles transmission, seeing if somebody is susceptible, so checking their vaccine status. So I would be concerned if a patient was unvaccinated and they had a fever. I mean, that, that's like enough for me to be like worried about, about things. Or if even if they're vaccinated and they traveled to an area of the world where we know that there's more measles transmitted because no vaccine's 100% effective. So I think getting all that in combination is important. And then um, many emergency rooms, including ours, I mean, they have signs up that say basically fever and rash just to set a low threshold for isolation. So anybody with a fever and rash, you'd want to consider isolating them because not only could it be measles, but it could be meningococcal disease or something else that's potentially infectious. What about treatment? Are there any treatment options out there that we can do from the emergency department? So treatment is generally supportive, but vitamin A is still recommended. So there's international studies in vitamin A deficient populations that suggest that giving vitamin A will lead to better outcomes. The cases that have occurred in the U.S., vitamin A levels have been checked, and a lot of them are vitamin A deficient also. And so that's why even though there's no good studies in the U.S. of giving vitamin A into U.S. children. It's still recommended give vitamin A, and really there's no, there's no downside in doing so. When would you recommend that we hospitalize these kids versus sending them home? And again, the hospitalization would be just like you make other decisions for hospitalization. So the main complications of measles are going to be dehydration and pneumonia. So if they have pneumonia that requires admission due to respiratory support, if they're dehydrated and need IV fluids, you're going to end up admitting them. 
if they're not dehydrated, if they don't have pneumonia, um, if they have the fever, the rash, the upper respiratory symptoms, they can certainly go home. And, you know, we'd, we'd rather have them be at home rather than in the hospital with potential hospital exposures. So in that case, you just want to make sure you coordinate with public health so that we limit exposures in the community. So call your infectious disease at your hospital and then they contact public health or you contact public health and make sure that you have good follow-up. Right, exactly. And the infection prevention folks and your infectious disease people can get the infection prevention folks involved. So what about post-exposure prophylaxis? What do we do for all of those people that have been exposed or for other family members and kids that are at home? Well, it's never too late to vaccinate. The incubation period can be long enough that you can prevent disease that way. So if somebody's not vaccinated, go ahead and get them caught up. And that may work or maybe it won't, but it might work. So there's some benefit to that. Um, for patients who are um, immune deficient, who are at increased risk for complications, those less than a year of age, those with any sort of immune suppression, they can get um, passive immunity. So gamma globulin, if that's not available, then IVIG can be given. Anything else that you think our emergency providers should know as they're approaching this concerning problem across the United States and across the world? So one of the things that we think about with measles is some parents, I've heard this, they say, well, it's just fever and rash and just get it over with. So we need to realize that one of the reasons we take this so seriously is that measles is a killer. That in the pre-vaccine era in the U.S., we had three to four million cases of measles every year in the U.S., and that led to four to five hundred deaths every year. So about one out of every thousand measles cases ends up dying. So I don't want to take a chance with that, and that's why we take it so seriously. And then second, from a public health point of view, We've talked about the incredible resources that need to be um, uh, devoted to even one case of measles. And so it turns out from a public health perspective, on average, for every case of measles in your community, public health is going to expend about $10,000 worth of resources. That adds up really quickly if you start getting secondary transmission. And so that leads public health to um, divert resources from other things that they're doing. And I think, you know, from my perspective, almost all public health programs are really understaffed, underfunded. They do great work. And so it really can impact the whole healthcare system. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and I'm glad you brought that piece up. You know, I was just standing in line for dinner the other night um, in downtown Sacramento after an um, anti-vaxxer uh, <laughs> um, rally had been present. And so I was listening to the conversation around me. And that was one of the arguments that I kept hearing was they would say, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just fever and rash for a few days. And, you know, you're injecting poison in my kids. And um, I heard one parent say that you know, the vaccine causes cancer. And it's just it's really interesting to hear these conversations. And I think it's important to hear their voice, but it's also helpful to have these objective numbers and um, things that are actually how this actually impacts our public health and impacts our system over. Overall. Yeah, absolutely. So in California right now, there's some legislation that's being introduced that's tightening up medical exemptions. And so there was a rally earlier this week. It'll be heard in the legislature at the end of this month. We anticipate a lot more controversy um, in this area. But I just want to be clear that what vaccines cause is vaccines cause adults. <laughs> they cause kids to be protected against diseases so they grow up and be healthy. And vaccines do not cause autism. Yeah, I love that. That is a great line. I'm definitely going to be using that in the future. And I think it was that rally that we saw them at afterwards. 
I appreciate Dean's perspective on measles because we are having to watch for this closely now due to the recent outbreak. So on a shift, I refer to the California Department of Public Health March 2019 quick sheet to know who I should suspect measles on and what to do. They just suggest that we think about measles in a patient of any age who has a fever and a rash. In measles cases, there must be some fever, even a subjective fever, and the rash must start on the head or the neck. Patients with measles usually have at least one or two of the three Cs, the cough, chorizo, and conjunctivitis that Dean mentioned. And if measles is considered, please don't hesitate to contact your local health department. The CDC also has some great resources for providers, including videos, pictures, and quick sheets. A link to that is in our resources. We want you to continue the conversation with us on social media. Which patients do you screen for measles? Do you have any good resources? Have you seen any confirmed cases? You can follow us at EM Pulse Podcast. Thank you to Dr. Dean Blumberg of Kids Considered for his perspective on this topic. And thanks to OM Audio Productions. See you in May 17th for our next episode. And in the meantime, those rash checks really do matter. Mm -hmm.